0: Welcome to this week's edition of From the MLJ Archive, a weekly radio program featuring the Bible teaching ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are currently listening to The Doctor's famous series from the Book of Romans, which he delivered to crowds on Friday nights from 1955 until 1968. But what you are about to hear is just as contemporary as when he preached it. And so let us now open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to The Doctor.
1: Most of you will uh, realize and remember that we have come now in our study of the ninth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans to the section which begins at verse 25, which we read at the beginning, as he saith also in Ozee, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Now here, as I'm reminding you, we come to a new subsection in the statement and the argument of this ninth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Uh, It is, I say, only a new subsection. It's continuing the theme that has occupied the whole length of the chapter. And the theme is, as we must constantly bear in our minds, the whole question of the position of the Jews relevant to the Christian church, and therefore relevant to the kingdom of God. Now, the apostle had ended his, what we may call, almost pure bit of argumentation, in verse 24, by saying this, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. What he has said, therefore, is this, and it is vital that we should carry the main argument in our minds. Otherwise, we shan't see the relevance of what he begins to do at verse 25. His argument has been this, to show that salvation is always the immediate result of the action of God himself. That man does not save himself. Man does not determine his own salvation. That salvation is entirely, only, altogether of God. The God who has said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But the apostle has been particularly concerned to say this, that God is absolutely free in this matter. He is a sovereign Lord. He is not obligated to anybody, and he is free to do anything that he wills. No one has any claim whatsoever upon him. We all are in sin, we all are under the wrath of God, we are born in sin, shapen in iniquity. The whole world lieth guilty before God, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and all the other things which the Apostle has already told us in the third chapter. Therefore, all mankind descendant from, descended from Adam is in a state of sin, is under the wrath of God, and deserves nothing but damnation. And the apostle's argument has been this, that God, therefore, is perfectly free to do exactly as he wills and as he chooses with regard to fallen mankind. And that what he actually does is to choose and to will to show mercy to some and to save them, and to leave others as they were. Perhaps even to harden them in order to show forth his power and his wrath. Very well, that's what the Apostle has been saying. So we can put it like this God is free to save whosoever he wills. He can save a Gentile as easily as a Jew, and has as much right to save a Gentile as a Jew. In exactly the same way, and by the same argument, he is at perfect liberty. To punish and to pour his wrath upon the Jews, or if he prefers to save a certain number out of the Jews. Now that's how the apostle has left his argument. He's demonstrated this. We've been through the argument in detail, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory even us, whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Very well, that's the point at which we've arrived. He's anxious, in other words, to show the Jews that the mere fact that they are Jews doesn't put them in any special position in this matter of salvation. No man is saved simply by physical descent. The fact that a man is born a Jew doesn't mean he's right with God and in the kingdom of God. They are not all Israel, who are of Israel. There it was, we saw it away back. In verse 6. And that's what he's been proving that God chooses out of Israel, but also equally out of the Gentiles, not confined to the Jews by any means whatsoever. And the mere fact, therefore, that people may happen to be physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob doesn't automatically save them. There is no such thing as an automatic salvation because of our birth or nation or anything else. Indeed, there is nothing that accounts for salvation except this sovereign will and grace of God. Now, that's what he's been proving. Salvation is always the result of God's active choice and never takes place apart from that. Well, now, the apostle has to go into all this, you see, for this reason, that it was so clear and obvious in those days that the majority of the jews as a nation were refusing the gospel of jesus christ whereas the largest number of people in the church consisted of gentiles now that was a fact which was there plain and obvious to all but that of course was the very thing that was troubling the jews so much and caused them to stagger this to them of everything was the final proof that this gospel so-called was a lie and was a blasphemy. It seemed to be going back on everything that God had not only done, but going back on everything that God had ever promised. This submission of the Gentiles into the church, and the statement and the preaching that they were fellow heirs with the Jews, was to the Jew nothing but sheer blasphemy. And that is the very position with which the great apostle is dealing. Very well then. So you see, he's uh, brought it to that point. He has shown the absolute freedom of God in this matter of salvation. And so he says, the unfortunate truth is that the majority of the Jews are outside. And those who are inside consist of us. Who are we? Well, those, he says, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Thank God, he seems to say, some of us who are Jews have been called and we are in, but it isn't confined to us. There are Gentiles also amongst us and sharing the blessings of the glory of God's grace and the riches of that glory in the Christian church. Very well, that's the point at which we've arrived. And it's vital, as I say, we should carry it on. Because now the apostle goes forward. And what he now does is this. He now goes on to show that not not only is all that true, but that nobody should be surprised at it. And nobody should be surprised at it because there was nothing new in this. It isn't some new teaching that he or anybody else has suddenly concocted or imagined He says, why do the Jews stumble at this? Why does anybody stumble at it? For the fact is, he says, that all this teaching is not some personal argument of mine. It is something that God himself has revealed clearly and plainly and abundantly through the prophets in ancient times. God revealed to the prophets hundreds of years before these things happened precisely this very thing which has actually taken place. So now the apostle is going to give his evidence to show that this is so. Now then, as we come to look at it, isn't it interesting to observe once more the apostle's method? I think I've said before that I find nothing so interesting or entrancing as to watch the working of a great mind. And that's the privilege which we have when we read this mighty man's epistles. You just see the working of his great mind. He didn't just say things anyhow somehow, didn't say the next thing that came to his mind. He's got a plan, he's got a scheme, he's always orderly. And this is something that those of us who preach should learn from him. Don't imagine that you are giving a manifestation of the hallmark of spirituality by not having order in your sermons or your addresses or your Sunday school lessons. It is not a hallmark of spirituality not to have order. It is the exact opposite. Here is this mighty man filled with the Spirit of God, and yet observe the order, observe the arrangement, observe the logic, observe the sequence. Observe how he marshals his evidence, presents his case. Nothing is more important for us than to know how to present our case, whether in public like this or whether we are doing it in private. And here I say we watch this great man's method. And his method, you see, is this one. He doesn't just quote verses. He uses his verses to support the argument he's already developed. Now there are some people who seem to think, That it's just enough to read a string of verses and just make a little comment. That's not preaching. That's not really presenting the case. No, no, this is the apostolic method. He has worked out his great theological principle. He's read, he knows his Old Testament so well. He's taken out of that this great central principle about the election of grace, as he's called it in the 11th verse, the purpose of God according to election. He sees it running through the whole of the Old Testament. So he works out his great argument, giving little illustrations as he passes. Then having developed the great argument, having arrived at his principle, he then is going to support it and confirm it by the evidence which is provided by the scripture itself. Now that's how he does it. And it seems to me to be the incomparably best method that one can ever think of you just bring in your scripture to underline it or to buttress it call it what you like and to establish it beyond any doubt or peradventure but now I say he does this lest um, anybody might say that he a clever man as he was was thrusting his own ideas uh, upon them people are always ready to say that, that oh yes this man he says he's read the scriptures but, but he's just giving his own views he's just giving his own theories now Paul demolishes any such argument or objection by just producing the scriptures which say plainly and explicitly the very thing that he already has been demonstrating to them. So we come now then to this interesting subsection. Now I think it may help if I again give you a kind of general analysis of the remainder of the chapter from verse 25 to the end. This is what he does. In verses 25 and 26, he produces the scriptural evidence to prove that God had foretold the coming in of the Gentiles. That's 25 and 26. God, through the prophets, had foretold that the Gentiles would come in and be fellow heirs with the Jews. In verses 27 and 28, he brings his scriptural proof of the fact that the rejection of the bulk of the nation of Israel was prophesied, and that only a remnant of them would be members and citizens of the kingdom of God in the form of the church. In verse 29, he shows how, according to the prophet Isaiah, this remnant even had been brought in. It's an astonishing thing, but the hell? There is a remnant of the Jews that are in, and there he explains how they were brought in. Then, when you come to verses 30 and 31, he does something which is so characteristic of him. He sums up the whole argument of the whole chapter with his formula what shall we say then? Now, that's always his way of summing up. What are we going to say in the light of all this? What shall we say then? And in The two verses, he tells us what he has got to say. And um, he states the position as it is, which is this, that on the whole, it is the Gentiles who are in and the Jews who are out. And then in the last two verses, verses 32 and 33, he explains the tragedy of the rejection of the Jews, the reason. Why they are out rather than in. And that in turn, of course, provides a kind of introduction to chapter 10 in which he works out that particular thing mentioned in the last two verses in great detail. Now, I think I've established my contention that the great apostle had a very orderly mind. He goes from point to point, from step to step, and then sums it all up, gathers it all up so that we've got the clear picture in our minds. Well now then, that being the analysis, we must come back and go through it now in detail. So we start with verses 25 and 26. Here, as I've just reminded you, the apostle shows and proves that the admission of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God was something that had long ago been prophesied. You see, he's got to demonstrate this. Verse 24 insists upon this. You see, even us whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. He's got to do two things. He's got to prove that the scriptures have prophesied the admission of the Gentiles and the rejection of the bulk of the Jews. Now then, in verses 25 and 26, he starts with the scriptures which prove that it had been prophesied that the Gentiles were going to come in. Now, here again, is a very interesting thing. Once more, we must watch the mind of these men. You notice that he um, reverses the order. What he says in verse 24 is, us... Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And yet, when he takes up his quotations, he starts with the Gentiles, deals with the admission of the Gentiles first, puts the rejection of the Jews second in verses 27 and 28. Why does he do this, you think? Well, to me, there's only one adequate answer and explanation. The great apostle was out, primarily, not even to demonstrate his case, but to win his fellow countrymen, the Jews. You remember how he began the chapter, I say the truth in Christ I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh that's his object he grieves at the fact that they're outside and what he's trying to do in this whole argumentation is to persuade them to make them see it so that they'll come in so he does his best for them in every way he doesn't start off here now when he comes to the quotations by quoting the scriptures which show that they're going to be pushed out and punished and so on no no he leaves that as long as he can so he takes up the admission of the Gentiles first. He's sparing his fellow countrymen as long as he can. He doesn't rush at, his, at any condemnation. He's trying to win them, trying to persuade them. So he turns to this evidence about the Gentiles first before he goes to prove his case with regard, with regard to the Jews. He's got to do it. But he's reluctant to turn to the negative condemnation. He he enjoys being positive. He's got to do the other, but he seems to postpone it as long as he can. From which I deduce this. That the apostle was not only a very great man, and a great uh, debater, a great logician, a great teacher. He was also a very great gentleman. I say that partly because this Professor Costas, who delivered his Wreath Lectures recently, it says more or less that the Apostle Paul was a bully, a domineering sort of man who liked his own way of it. How ignorant these people are of the scriptures. All right, the Apostle Paul was a very great gentleman. And he's constantly giving us evidence of it in matters like this, which seem to be comparatively trivial and unimportant. Which What's it matter which he puts first? Well, it does matter which he puts first. And here, my friends, you and I must learn another lesson. If we want to win people as we should, well, keep your denunciation back as long as you can. Our Lord tolerated the Pharisees and scribes almost to the end of his ministry. Take the gospel according to St. Matthew. He doesn't rarely attack them and denounce them until you come to chapter 23. Some of us start with denunciation and then think we can win people afterwards. No, no. Give people a chance. Give them an opportunity. They're blinded by the devil. Don't be in too much of a hurry to be negative and denunciatory. Put the positive. Make it as attractive as you can. Do everything you can to win people. And the more certain you are that they're wrong, the more you should go out of your way to try to win them to the truth. Let's all decide tonight to emulate the example of the great apostle. There is something even more important than proving that you're right in what you say. And that is to have a heart of love and a desire for the salvation of men and women. Very well, here you see, you can't afford to rush over the scripture. Watch everything. And you'll find some remarkable things where you least expect them. Well now, having said that, let us look at the actual quotation. Verse 25. As he saith also in Ozi, which is Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people and her beloved which was not beloved. And a further quotation from Hosea, It shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, He are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Now then, this first quotation in verse 25 is from uh, the book of the prophet Hosea, chapter 2 and verse 23. But there's an interesting point here. And the interesting point is this, that what the apostle says in this 25th verse of the 9th chapter of the epistle to the Romans is not an exact quotation either from the Hebrew Bible or from the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. You'll remember how about the 3rd century before Christ A number of people, 72 people, uh, translated the Old Testament into Greek. And it's said that they did it in 72 days. And it's known as the Septuagint uh, translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament in Greek. Now, that was the Old Testament that was used, of course, in the Roman world at the time when the Apostle and our Lord lived. It was in common use. And the Apostle was very familiar with it. And quite often he does quote directly from the Septuagint version. But here, he doesn't quote exactly either from the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, or from the original Hebrew itself. How do you explain that? Was the apostle feeling tired when he wrote? Was he being careless? Was he making an actual mistake? Now many people have stumbled over this, the so-called higher critics, who don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, and who rarely don't believe in the divine inspiration of these New Testament writers, are very fond of using this as as an argument for their case and on their side. There you are, they say, you people, you are literalists, and you insist upon every word, but the great apostle didn't. Look how loosely he quotes. He's not punctilious about every single word being in at the right point and in the right place and so on. No, no, he was interested only in the general sense. And therefore they say, when you talk about verbal inspiration, you are doing something that obviously the apostles themselves did not believe in. And this is a part of their argument in favor of that position. Now then, what is the answer to this? Well, the answer to that, of course, is this, that the great apostle was a man who was deeply versed in the scriptures. He knew his scriptures probably as no man has ever known them. He was the last man in the world to be careless or to allow himself to make mistakes. Well, then says somebody, what is the explanation? Well, the explanation, surely, is this, and it's a most important point. It was the same Holy Spirit who led and guided the prophet Hosea in what, he, in what he wrote, as led and guided the apostle Paul in what he wrote here. The same Spirit, the same author. You have the same author of the scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New you remember Peter's statement with respect to that. No prophecy of scripture. He says in his second epistle and in verse 1. In chapter 1 and in verses 20 and 21. No prophecy of scripture came in old times of the will of men. He says no prophecies of any private interpretation. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's the Old Testament. That's the prophecy. Well, now, the same thing is true exactly of the Apostle Paul himself. He is being led by exactly the same Spirit. The only person who has any right, therefore, to vary the exact form of the expression is the Holy Spirit himself. And it is he who does so in the case of the Apostle Paul. He states the same essential truth as he stated through Hosea, but he states it in this slightly different form. And my argument is that he and he alone is entitled to do so. So that this far from being an argument against the inspiration of the apostle Paul is to me one of the final proofs of his inspiration in this way. That if the apostle were just writing in and of himself, not under the influence and inspiration of the Spirit, he would most certainly have had his documents with him and he would have copied out his quotation exactly and accurately as you and I should do. But he clearly didn't do that. He clearly was being led and guided and inspired by the Spirit, and the Spirit introduces this slight and utterly immaterial variation. That is my first conclusion, therefore, from this, that it is a proof, one of the proofs, of the divine unique inspiration of the great apostle himself. None of these men played with the scripture or handled it loosely, quite the reverse. He's called the scriptures in chapter 3 the oracles of God. And like every Jew, the reverence which they pay to these scriptures The way they'd guarded them, the way they'd copied them, it was one of the most outstanding characteristics of these men, and especially the Pharisees, among whom the Apostle Paul had been brought up. You don't get any carelessness among such people. There's only one explanation. It is the Spirit himself who is introducing the slight variation. We've had exactly the same thing before in the 17th verse of the first chapter. I'm just reminding you of what I said on that occasion. I draw one second conclusion also for ourselves, which is a practical one. The fact that the Holy Spirit varies it like this does not entitle us to do the same thing. And we must be careful to be accurate. We have no right, because we are not inspired as the apostle was, to vary. I say this, of course, because we are familiar with the fact that many people even expounding this very paragraph that we are dealing with and the whole of this great chapter do the very thing which I am saying we shouldn't do. In order to make it fit in with their own ideas, they don't hesitate to leave out words or to leave out sections of verses. They don't hesitate to take a piece from another place. Well, you are familiar with the methods of the so-called higher critics. You can see it in some modern translations. They don't hesitate to vary the actual documents in the Greek in order to make them fit in with their own preconceived notions and ideas. I'm saying we're not entitled to do it. If there is a variation, it is the Holy Spirit's variation through the inspired apostle. It doesn't give us any right to play fast and loose with the scriptures or to chop and change in order, I say, to substantiate our own particular view. Well, now, there's one point about this quotation, but there's a second. Hosea, in uh, that second chapter, in verse 23, as indeed in the whole of his prophecy, is quite plainly and clearly dealing with and addressing and writing about the ten Tribes of Israel that had separated from Judah and Benjamin. You remember, the history tells us that there was a division in Israel. Ten of the tribes went off in rebellion and were separated from Judah and Benjamin in the way that we are told in the history. And they formed a kingdom on their own which is referred to as the Northern Kingdom or else as Israel in contrast to the southern kingdom of Judah now Hosea was one of these prophets that addressed the northern kingdom these ten tribes that had gone off to form the northern kingdom and he wrote to them and addressed them just after the first or the Assyrian captivity to which they were subjected now that is what Hosea was doing His message is to them, these ten tribes of the northern kingdom. But here we have the apostle Paul taking the writings of Hosea and applying them to the Gentiles, who didn't belong either to the northern or the southern kingdom. Now then, has he got a right to do a thing like this? And he's not alone. The apostle Peter does exactly the same thing. In 1 Peter 2.10, you read these words. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter does exactly the same thing as the Apostle Paul. And the question I say that arises is this. Have they a right to do this? Or if you prefer it, on what grounds do they do this? What right has he to take this prophecy addressed to a peculiar people, the Ten Tribes, and say that this is the truth about the Gentiles? Now, this is a very important and vital question. The Pharisees, and people known as uh, the rabbinical writers, they were very fond of using scriptures to serve their own ends. It's not confined to them. Every heretic has done the same thing. It's still being done. It's a thing about which we should all always be careful. People very often are out of the wrong view. And then they say, but the scripture says this. But they're quoting a scripture which really doesn't apply to the case. And the point, therefore, I'm raising here is this. Is the apostle guilty of doing that very thing? What right has he got? to take a prophecy concerning the ten tribes of the northern kingdom and to apply it to the Gentiles. Now, this is, as I say, a most important point in the whole matter of the interpretation of prophecy. It doesn't only apply to this case, it applies to so many cases in the New Testament. In other words, there's nothing that's more important for us then that we should know exactly how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament. How they handle the prophecies, Because what the Apostle does here is done very, very frequently in the New Testament. What's the explanation? Well, of course, it isn't a misuse of Scripture. No man inspired by the Holy Ghost misuses Scripture. Well, what is the explanation? Well, the explanation is simple. Prophecy generally has two meanings. The prophecies of the Old Testament generally have two meanings. The first meaning applies to the immediate situation of the Jews to whom they were writing. Something contemporary, something that was happening at that very time. But prophecy generally has another meaning. A remote meaning. And that is that in addition to dealing with a particular situation that then obtained, it uses that as a prophecy of something that is going to happen under the New Testament or the Gospel dispensation. And that is precisely what we have here in this particular example. You see, God's method is always the same. It is the same God who was operating in the Old Testament as in the New. And one of the great functions of the Old is to be a prophecy of the New and a picture of the New. Now let me give you the great example, the classical illustration. Take the history and the story of the children of Israel being delivered from the bondage and the captivity of Egypt. How they were brought out. But how they had to kill the lamb and paint his blood over the lintels and the doorpost. You remember? And eat that unleavened bread and so on. How they were brought out and taken through the Red Sea by a miracle and their enemies were destroyed behind them. How they were led through the wilderness, crossed the Jordan and went into Canaan. Now that's all history. God did that to them. He saved his earthly human people in that actual manner. That's its first meaning. But the scripture everywhere keeps on telling us that that had got a second meaning. That is also a wonderful picture of the spiritual salvation of the soul that has come in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is a second Moses, he's a second Joshua, he's a Passover lamb, and so on. All these which actually happened, are used by the New Testament in such a way as to tell us, now then, all this has long since been foretold and has been prophesied. This is a very important principle. There's a double meaning in prophecy. Very often the prophets and the people themselves didn't understand it. Sometimes they did. Uh, Peter tells us again in that first epistle of his, in the the first chapter, and in verses 11 and 12, uh, something which is very important in this whole connection. Listen to it. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Now there it is. First and foremost, the prophet was speaking to the immediate situation. But he was aware that there was something more than that in it. There was a prophecy of something that was to happen in a yet bigger manner in a spiritual sense. So you've always got to bear in mind this possibility of the two meanings, the immediate and the remote. Now this is an illustration of that very thing. The ten tribes were, of course, a part of Israel originally. But, as I say, they would rebelled under Jeroboam, and they had gone off and had formed that northern kingdom. And the result of that was that they were cut off. They were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. And virtually they had become as if they were pagan Gentiles. You remember Jeroboam setting up that worship at Dan and so on? They become virtually pagans. They still are the ten tribes that originally belonged to the whole twelve tribes, but they put themselves into a position in which they are virtually pagans and are certainly no longer the people of God. And not amongst the people of God. So the prophet addresses them as such and says that to them. And what the apostle is saying here under divine inspiration is this. That while that was the first and the immediate meaning. It also had this other meaning. This remoter meaning. And he says in a wonderful way. You and I are now actually seeing coming to pass the remote meaning that was in that old prophecy of Hosea so long ago. He was not only writing about the northern kingdom, he was also writing about what was going to happen to the actual pagans, those who were altogether and entirely outside the commonwealth of Israel. So when he says that, When Hosea says that these people are going to be brought back, these rebellious ten tribes of the northern kingdom, when he says that they are going to be brought back, he is saying at the same time, if they can be brought back, so can Gentiles. If they have made themselves and have become pagans can be brought back, so can actual pagans be brought back. You have the two meanings blending together, and so both become true. So that what Hosea actually said in the ultimate is that Gentiles are to be saved and to be citizens of the kingdom of God in addition to the Jews. Now then there is verse 25. Verse 26 rarely says almost exactly the same thing. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. Now there's no need to stumble over that expression in the place where, there. Some people take that to mean, ah, this is a prophecy of all the Jews going back to Palestine. doesn't mean that at all for a single second. What it means is this, in that hopeless place where they are even there. They can be saved. You don't have to go back to Palestine to be saved. You're saved where you are. That's all it's saying. Nothing more at all. But some have tried to twist it to mean that other thing. It's just a very dramatic way of saying, even in that hopelessness. Even there. Well, let me put it in its New Testament form. He came and cried, Peace. To them that are far off as well as them that are nigh. Even them that are far off there, in their far off position, the word comes to them. And they are saved and delivered by it. Very well. Let me just, as I close this evening, call your attention to the wonderful description. Which is given us in these two verses of the difference that salvation makes what are we by nature what is all mankind by nature here's the answer we are not God's people I will call them my people which were not my people that's the terrible thing about being in sin that's the terrible thing of not being a Christian you are not God's people you are without God you are in the world what a terrible thing there is no teaching in the scripture about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal fatherhood of men. No, no. All by nature are not the people of God. Out of relationship with him. In no relation to his covenants or his promises. Not only that, not beloved. And that means two things. It means like a faithless wife. You remember what poor Azir had to do. He had to marry a wife of whoredoms. Just to bring out this great picture. Mankind by nature is like that. Not beloved. No, no, quite the reverse. Horrible. Faithless wife. But God not interested. God not concerned. God not loving. Not beloved. Well, the apostle in Ephesians 2.12 reminds the pagans of what they were. He says, you are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You are strangers from the covenants of promise you were without hope you were without god in the world what a terrible position that's everybody who is not a christian shut off from the light and the blessing of god and the life of god but notice what we become this is the wonderful thing i will call them who were not my people my people Not only that, they shall be called the children of the living God. If you're a Christian, that's what you are. Don't think of Christianity merely in terms of forgiveness of sins. It is that, but it's much more than that. You're not only forgiven when you become a Christian, you're changed from not being a people to becoming the people of God, from being an outcast and without God in the world the children of the living God and all that is meant by the term children. God says to such people, I will be your God and you shall be to me a people. But in addition, I will call them my people which were not my people and her beloved which was not beloved. And this, I remind you, does not merely mean that now God loves us. It goes beyond that. We become betrothed to him. We become married to him. That's a picture that is used so frequently in the Bible. The church is the bride of Christ, with all that that represents. Not only by way of dignity and position, but especially of care and concern and guardianship. Well, we've already dealt with that in expounding the fourth verse of the seventh chapter, where the apostle had put it like this, and with this we leave it tonight. Wherefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that you should bring forth fruit unto God. Well, there it is. We leave it at that for this evening. In demonstrating and proving and substantiating his case, the apostle at the same time reminds us of what we are in Christ and the change that has taken place. Not a people, now a people. Not beloved, now beloved. Children, children of the living God let us pray O Lord our God we come unto thee once more to express our thanksgiving and our praise forgive us O Lord that we are so slow to grasp these things and that instead of living as thy children We so often are uncertain, full of fears and doubts and grumbles and complaints. O God, help us to see that in Christ thou hast made us thy people, thine own children, that thou hast affianced us unto thyself, that thou art our father, our husband, and that nothing shall harm us because of this blessed glorious relationship bless thy word to us we pray thee this night and enable us O God to lay hold on it will thou by thy spirit cause it to lay hold on us so that henceforth we shall live by it and heed the injunction children of the heavenly king as ye journey sweetly sing sing your saviour's worthy praise, glorious in his works and ways. Oh, God, forgive us that we do not march and sing as we should as the children of the heavenly King, but enable us in the light of this thy word to us tonight to see it and to feel it in such a manner that we shall indeed go on our way sweetly singing. And now... May the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore. Amen.
0: We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.